0: You're listening to 5 Things with Lisa Birnbach. Hi, I'm Lisa Birnbach. A number of my friends are trying to ignore the news. They're able to ignore the news that, to me, gushes uncontrollably like lava, a toxic spill that can sometimes prevent me from doing things. But I understand trying to ignore it. There's a part of me that wishes I could join them and read more fiction, take more walks, eat meals with friends al fresco. I can't, and I make no judgment for them. I'm just not wired to not pay attention. I do know how to compartmentalize my thoughts, but this takes something beyond that. I can still enjoy my new life as an amateur baker and cook. I am still able to read, thank God, and write, and adore my family. I am spending more time talking on the phone with friends. I do like talking, as you may have gathered, and I'm getting pleasure from purging my closets and cabinets, but I cannot for one minute stop thinking about the numbers of Americans who are going to die from coronavirus because the nitwit, the malevolent nitwit in the White House doesn't care. I can't Stop thinking about the racism I observe online and uh, reading Instagram posts and tweets and the newspaper. And I can't not dwell on the evil of Tucker Carlson making fun of Tammy Duckworth's patriotism. Her legs were blown off in war. She won a Purple Heart. And what, he was on Dancing with the Stars? I don't get it. I cannot forget for 1 second that disgusting Laura Ingram and her making fun of people for wearing masks or saying that masks don't help. I'll stop right here because I also, I'm calm and I have my five things and we're going to talk about those. So, I'm going to take a big breath. But before I do, I want to tell you about our guest, her name is Carrie Lizer. She is a very funny writer whose work you're already familiar with because she wrote and produced Will and Grace, and she created and wrote The New Adventures of Old Christine, the show that starred Julia Louis-Dreyfus. Now she's written her first book called Aren't You Forgetting Someone? Essays from My Midlife Revenge. I think you'll enjoy her. And also, she uses her children's real names as opposed to my exhibits. Okay, here is my list of five. Number one, as I've been plunging into my uh, uh, storage boxes and storage bins, I have found old mementos and souvenirs, some of which I'm planning on framing. Uh, some pieces that are framed, I'm going to reframe when it's you know safe to go out and do that. And uh, it'll freshen up the joint. I'm looking forward to that. Number two, COVID skin. Okay, it's July. By this time, any other year, I would be tan and my skin would be damaged. So due to the fact that COVID is upon us and around us, I'm indoors almost all the time. When I'm out, I'm wearing a mask, which, you know, covers most of my face. Then I have sunscreen on my forehead and the bridge of my nose, even though that's covered. And then I'm wearing a hat and sunglasses. So I'm going to have really great skin at the end of this. Number three. I'm loving my preppy face masks from Rowing Blazers. The ones I have are lightweight. They're made from shirt material, thin cotton, and seersucker. And on my website at LisaBurnbach.com, you will see the link where you can order them from if you like them. And with every mask they sell, the company donates a mask to the food bank for New York City. Number four, rosé. I'm not, I'm not. An alcoholic, I've got it all under control, but a glass of chilled rose at the end of the workday reminds me that outside it is summer. And also, let's face it, it just tastes so good. Number five, Dr. Fauci. Listen to him. I know they've tried to silence him, but listen to him. He's not lying to anyone. His only agenda is to save lives and wear a mask when you go out. Okay? Coming up, Carrie Lizer on having an empty nest. Don't go away. My guest today, Carrie Lizer, has written a very funny, extremely honest, and I say this without having met her before, memoir called Aren't You Forgetting Someone? Essays from My Midlife Revenge. Carrie, it's so nice to talk to you. Very nice to talk to you too. Thank you for having me. I feel I know you very well, which is always (laughs) a a hardship in, in an interview, especially when you can't see one another. I know you intimately now and you don't know me, but I have to say, you remind me of me in some very good ways. I think one of the ways I'd like to talk about is how you can write about your family life so intimately you have 3 kids I do too I call them my exhibits because I've always been terrified of revealing their names because I'm such an embarrassing person to be associated with how did your kids feel about you writing about them and using I expect their actual names I
1: did use their real names and you know because I've been writing television for so long and sort of mining their lives since the day they were born I think they're used to it more or less Uh, I did send them certain essays as I went along and said you need to let me know how you feel about this you need to let me know right now do I need to change your names do I need to change certain aspects of this story before it gets out in the world and my kids um I think above all else, they like attention. I think they like attention as much as mm-hmm. I do. And I, and so I think the, at the end of the day, they were a little bit like, well, uh, as long as I'm funny, I don't care. Um, their biggest concern was my daughter in particular said, I sound like a pain in the ass. Make me funnier. Uh, Um, that really was, they were all really good sports about it. I'm happy to say. So, um, that was their only complaint was don't make me sound mean.
0: Um, make sure I'm funny and then you can use my name. And they all read the book, I assume, or the essays before it was published.
1: Well, I'm not sure my youngest son has read the book yet. Uh, I, uh, yeah. I keep asking about it. Like, what did you think of the book? And I keep getting really vague answers. So I don't know that he's read it yet,
0: honestly. And how old is he now? He's 22. He's 22. Mm-hmm. And you have twins who are what, 25? they are 24. 24. Mm-hmm. And so they never felt cannibalized. They felt kind of as if you were making them kind of cooler and more famous because other people's famous. parents don't Get to do that?
1: Yeah, I think I think they uh, they didn't mind being a little famous, and uh, yeah, no, I, I think they didn't. I think they were just they were used to it. It was sort of part of their growing up, and I think it was it was sort of normal for them and for their upbringing. I think they were okay with it.
0: Now, the person you expose the most and embarrass the most, of course, is yourself. Of course, and there's so many, I guess, uh, stories that could be potentially career destroying if you didn't invent your own career. Um, you've made yourself sound unlikable, <laughs> completely self-absorbed, antisocial, mm-hmm. impatient, mm-hmm. indifferent, judgmental, <laughs> judgy, Mcjudgy or whatever you <laughs> called yourself. I mean, let's talk about how you exaggerated those attributes for the sake of humor.
1: At the end of the day, when, when I, when I, um, was writing these essays when I would get worried about exposing other people what the saving grace was and what I said to my children and what I said to my mother and what I said to my friends was I am the biggest fool at the carnival here and mm-hmm. I I won't treat anybody worse than I treat myself and while it is um certainly exaggerated for comic effect it's all my worst fears about myself and I think I'm hard on myself for sure and mm-hmm. and I hope that People can read between the lines and know that this is all what's going on in my brain. And it's not necessarily the truth of who I am as a person, that I really am better than that. But these are my worst moments come to life. So that's really the idea of the book. You know, this is my, this is my middle of the night voice. My biggest fears when I'm alone, my children have left me and I'm alone with this horrible person that is me. And
0: well, I think that comes across completely and to the point where. Now I just finished reading it so you're very alive in my head mm. but to the point where I think I know how your mind works. You've really laid it out. You've laid it out whether it's the fear of being rejected. I can't re- you can't reject me cuz I'm rejecting you first. Right. You can't fire me. Uh, you know, it's all very protective. Ooh. And I think we understand that as a, as a woman of a certain age, you know, you become less appealing. There are no more eggs to offer anyone as a, <laughs> as a recompense. <laughs> and uh, what are you going to do? But meanwhile, what you don't really go into in your book is how you've also had tremendous success in your life. It's yeah. hard to be self-deprecating and talk about the great success yes
1: because it does cut both ways i think that it, you know writing these i wrote these over a certain period of time and and what happened i sort of woke up one day I was on this sort of hamster wheel of success, this hamster wheel of raising kids and look at these kids and they're doing so great and my career is thriving and I'm making money that I never thought I would make as a person who didn't go to college and a person who, you know, didn't even do very well in high school. And all of these surprising things happened in my life. And then I sort of woke up and wondered what now and who am I now and sort of really did feel like I was being pushed off a cliff of, oh, what did it all mean? All of this raising kids and all of this success and all of this career and everything else. And, and what does it all amount to? And so I think it, it was, it came to a dark place and the success didn't amount to what I thought it would. And reflecting back on it was, was an interesting time, but I did come out the other side of it, and I was sort of happy that success and and money and career and all of that sort of lost its luster because now I'm sort of at a place where it's like, well, now what do I want to do? I'm not chasing that anymore. And that's Mm -hmm. really liberating, actually. It's actually a, a really kind of fantastic place to be, not not a bad place to be at all, because I don't care about that as much anymore. And I was on such a climb for such a long time of everything had to be great. And my kids had to go to the the good college and, you know, do everything that I didn't do in terms of those kind of opportunities. And I was so driven to get the great job and get the show on the air and do all of these other things. And that's sort of gone away now in a fantastic way. I am left alone with my thoughts, which can go to bad places, but I'm also off that treadmill a little bit.
0: Well, that treadmill is particularly vicious in the show business world in Los Angeles, because having spent some time there in that mm-hmm. world, you know that even if you're a writer, not an actress, which you started, you started out as an actress, even if you're a writer who is never seen, you're still judged on your looks. Mm-hmm. You're still judged on your weight you're still judged on your hair color. You're still judged on your body. I had an experience similar to one that you've written about in casting sessions. I wrote a, a pilot once and during the audition period, I thought it would be fun to audition actors and actresses and it actually became sad because my co-producer, who was a comedy writer and a terrible person, would say (laughs) after each person would leave the room, I couldn't fuck her. And I thought, what? Who are you? Why would she want to? Right. You know, but it goes without saying that everybody wants to be appreciated for everything and the competition of living in Los Angeles. And, you know, you talk about being in a In a nail salon across the way from two women who were private school mothers, Mm -hmm. as you thought. And then you realized, wait, my kids go to private school. So I can't (laughs) judge them on that. I mean, there is just nothing that gets you out of that competitive road race, uh, Mm -hmm. except for maybe moving to Vermont.
1: Well, it's true. And it is really difficult to age in Los Angeles. It's really Mm -hmm. difficult for all of us. And, and, like you said, not even being an actress, which is where I started, and many of my friends are actors in Los Angeles. And to just be in that world, to just walk around and be aware of what the priorities are there can mess with your mind, for sure. So yes, Mm -hmm. that's why, you know, coming to Vermont, and suddenly realizing that, you know, going out and, and, walking through the mud in your bare feet and sort of getting your head cleared is very liberating. And you realize that the world does not all live that way. And yeah, being in that casting office and and knowing that there's a lot of people and not everyone, there's some delightful people in Los Angeles, but there's a lot of people that have gotten to where they are so that they can sit in a casting office and be in charge of eliminating actresses based on who they want to fuck and who they don't want to fuck because they didn't get to do it in high school. You know what right. I mean? To be honest, right. you know, that's sort of, it all sort of kind of boils down to that at the end of the day. And when and you realize it and it still hurts your feelings. It still hurts my feelings, you know, at 58 years old, you know, to be in that environment, I go back to, to being in ninth grade and not getting picked, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, that is the world that you still travel in. And so it's, it's not easy to be bathed in that all day, every day. And you have to find a way to climb out of it and just, and sort of have your priorities shifted a little bit. So it's really good to get out of there and think about other things and do other things and, and write about it. And it's, and for me, it was just liberating to sort of write about it and call it for what it was.
0: Right, right. Well, there is, One thing that you always prioritized over your work, it seems, and that was your family, your children. And you talk about how you were uh, seeing your your shrink and he talked about falling in love or unrequited love. Have you ever had it? And You said, I have more than that with my children. I mean, if, if you read the book straight through, instead of picking up an essay here or an essay there. Your life with your children is the thing you care about most and the thing you prioritize most. And the and your fantasy life is about having that wonderful time with your kids. Everybody getting along.
1: Yes, yes, for sure. It is the priority of all priorities, and it and it made everything worthwhile. At the end of the day, nothing else really mattered, you know. And and it was. Um, it was also flawed and difficult and, you know, all those things that families are, but, uh, yeah, I could always hold it in my sights. It's like, this is the thing I'm doing it for. And right. You know, vacation is coming up, so hold on tight. You know, I can get through these three, yeah. and, you know, cause we get to write the- two more episodes. Exactly. And- you know, it was are always-
0: going away. Yeah.
1: Right. Yeah. It was always the thing that, that was, you know, that was, there to, um, to, that was made everything sort of worthwhile that I could always hold on to, you know, the, even the soccer tournaments on the weekend, it's like, that was such a reprieve. You know, I could go sit in my little fold out chair with my cooler full of snacks and surrender to it and be a normal person and just sit there and watch my kids play soccer was just such a relief. And then suddenly you were just a person on, you know, on the soccer field and that was heaven. You know, that was my idea of just a, a great weekend.
0: Uh, Did you have help raising your kids after your divorce or separation? Because you you talk a lot about being a single mom. Was your ex-husband involved with raising the kids, or did you have a babysitter, or nanny? Yeah. I mean,
1: my ex-husband is a, a good dad. He's... And he... Lives in Los Angeles, an actor, and he was around for sure. But he was also trying to make his way. But there were three kids, and they had a lot of activities and a lot of stuff going on. I also had Elizabeth, who I refer to as my wife. I don't, you know, I don't know if I call her that in the book. She doesn't like it very much when I call them <laughs> her. But um, she has been with me since before my kids were born, and she. I have so many animals in my house. I mean, forget. Right. <laughs> I have so many animals that if Elizabeth weren't with me, nothing would work. My house would just cave in on itself. And she is, you know, part farmer, nanny, you know, just best friend, best everything. And she makes the whole thing run for me because I'm a, I'm able to go out of town and she feeds the chickens and tends to the sick cat and the dogs and the rabbit and everything else that comes in. We had a parrot at one point. We ha- We've had rats. We've had you know, everything. I mean, the whole place is just crawling. So if it weren't for Elizabeth sort of holding the place together, it wouldn't have worked. And then there's been nannies that have come and gone. When Dayton, my youngest was a baby, I was breastfeeding. So he had to come to work with me. And so I had a nanny that would come to the office with me and she would come knock on the writer's room door, you know, he's crying. And then I'd have to leave the writer's room and go feed him. And then, you know, there were breast pumps and and then the twins would come when they were two and they would come to work at lunchtime to see me. So it was just a, um, it was a collaborative effort of help and family and their dad and myself and friends and other writers would, you know, I'd be sitting in the writer's room and I'd see one of the production assistants carrying the baby beside me. <laughs> saying, you know, we're going to go deliver scripts on the golf cart. It's like, oh God, you know, riding on the golf cart. So. It is definitely a group effort when you're working that hard and you have three kids that are within three years of each other.
0: Yeah. And two are twins. Yeah. Yeah.
1: It's a a free for all. You know, everybody
0: has to help. Exactly. Exactly. Would you say that you are a woman's woman or a man's woman?
1: You know, I think when I was younger, I was sort of a man's woman because I was dumb You know, I was, you know, I was always trying to get guys to like me and laugh at me. And I liked boys thinking I was funny and I had a lot of guy friends. And I think as I've gotten older and smarter, I adore women and not that I don't like men still, but I, uh, have so many great women friends and I value women a lot more than I did when I was younger. Mm -hmm. Um, I care much more about, um, their brains and their thoughts, and I have great, better conversations with them. And I would take a tribe of women
0: um, over a tribe of men any day. When you were younger, you you wanted more male attention and male friends, or I think
1: I, when I was younger, I cared more about what men thought of me because I was dopier. And I think as I've gotten older, I've come to appreciate much more the company of women. Uh, I I like my conversations that I have with them. My friendships are so much deeper with women, and I it's shifted really. I when I was younger, I had many more men friends than I had women friends. I had I've always had a few great female friends always, but um, the comedy world is predominantly men. So that yeah. was part of it is I worked with mostly men. There were a lot of times when I was the only woman in the room. So that was part of it. But I think I've come to appreciate my friendships with women a lot more than I did when I was younger. And I just really value the time that I spend with my women friends. I think much more than I did when I was younger.
0: When I read the book, Aren't You Forgetting Someone? It feels like you don't have any friends and I was worried about you. <laughs> Oh,
1: that's sad. Uh, Because it sounds like my kids are my only friends Um, when
0: when they abide you. yeah, Yeah. Yes. Yeah.
1: Well, that was a little bit true for a while. That was a realization that I came to when they left. Is that I hadn't really set myself up very well because time was so short. You know, there was there was work which took up so much time and then there was kids and that there really wasn't a lot of time for anything else i didn't have a big social life and so that was the shock to my system when the kids left was uh-oh i now what yeah. yeah i really ha- didn't uh, see that coming and so that was true i didn't i didn't cultivate um outside interests i didn't i never went to the parties that people invited me to or events that didn't involve the kids or uh, there just wasn't time, you know, you just had to you had to pick like my my working mom's guilt was so intense that every spare minute was going to be spent with the kids. That was just that was just it for me. So right. I I hadn't really cultivated that part of my life. And I had to work on that when the kids were gone or sit home alone. So yeah, um, it was a little pitiful, but I'm
0: I'm better now. Thank you. You're better now. Well, you yeah. give the impression that you were talking to yourself mm. and very much talking to your animals <laughs> yeah. and had forsaken human com- company yeah. for, for that. But I'm glad that you're that you're socializing with humans now.
1: Yeah, a little bit. I mean, listen, I'm not great, but and I still would prefer a dog over a person. But um, there are there are people in my life that I value and I uh, I associate with. So I'm I'm a little better. I'm not the hermit that I was when it first when my kids first went off.
0: Now. Having written for television for most of your adult career what was it that made you turn to writing a book of essays
1: I've been doing the same thing for so long that I just I wanted to do something a little bit different creatively I just I felt like I was just sort of repeating myself a little bit creatively so I just I joined this writers group which was part of my socialization too frankly this woman Claudette Sutherland who's 80 years old, and she's this fantastic writing teacher in Los Angeles, a former actress. And I. she has this writer's table at her house, and... I went there and just started writing. That were they were just sort of these rants at first. I just and I didn't know what they were, but I just went in every week and sort of read these things, and people would laugh at them, and they just sort of became this pile of essays. And I didn't know what I would do with them, but um, I brought them into my agents, which happened to be a conference room full of. Uh, suited men. And I really didn't know what they would think of them because I I sort of said, you know, here's the the scribblings from inside my uterus. So, um, (laughs) you know, do what you will with them. And and they actually connected to them, which was very gratifying because- Well, uh, they're very funny. Well, thanks. But they also, what I learned through this process was that- Men are are not immune to this devastation that is the empty nest. You know, we, I think a lot of times we think that it's a female thing and then it's a mother thing, but I've talked to so many fathers who get sort of knocked off their feet when their kids leave. You know, these, Mm -hmm. these, these guys who have coached their, their kids in little league or, and just have, just didn't see it coming, like didn't really see how um, it was going to knock the wind out of them. And um, so on that level, it was pretty gratifying to talk to these dads and have them relate to these essays on a level that I I didn't expect. So that was, that was pretty great. And um, then it just, you know, it turned into this book, which I, I didn't expect. I didn't, I didn't, it wasn't anything that I did purposefully. It just sort of happened, which was kind of nice.
0: Well, it's delightful and and what is especially gratifying about reading this book that I didn't write, but I feel I could have <laughs> contributed to some of them is that it's so up to date. I mean, you include Kristen Ford Blasey, it's right there. Mm. I guess the mood, the 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 texture against which women have to think and write these days. Mm. It's right there. Um, One last thing before we get to your five things, Carrie, is you've written a lot for Julia Louis-Dreyfus, and I can't help but be struck by that sketch she was in with Amy Schumer. (laughs) Yeah, Uh, Tell me your reaction to that. I guess it's called The Last Fuckable Day yeah, or something.
1: Yeah, not fuckable anymore. When, when they had Patricia Arquette come in and break the news to her, is that the and, one? And, yeah. Yes, and Tina yeah. Fey. Yes. yes, yeah, yeah. Um, well, I mean, Julia is just... Heaven, I mean, yeah, yeah. just forget it. She can, she can. There's just nothing that she can't do and make us laugh, including sort of hard truths that anybody else could do and would be off-putting. She is brilliant at that. And when I saw that, it really is sort of the the bane of these actresses' existence. Like, I think just when women are getting interesting, frankly, the industry in particular is losing interest in them, and it's a damn shame. You know, I would, I would love to, I want to write for those women all day long. I'm doing a new series with Kira Sedgwick, who really? I just think gets more delightful and delicious every day, you know? Um, and the same with Julia. She couldn't, she just every, every minute she gets more interesting and beautiful and sexy and all those things. So yeah, I mean, that sketch, I thought it was just spot on and perfect. And, and Amy Schumer, slays me. And yeah, I just, I, I, I love taking those subjects and yes, being hard hitting and being brutal and truthful and honest, but there's nothing that I find more satisfying than when people take those and tell the truth about them and then also make us laugh, you know?
0: Yeah. That's a very, that's a special gift to have. Okay. Carrie, let's talk about your five things. Okay. Okay. Number one. Dogs. Yeah.
1: yeah. I mean, I just have to say I didn't put my kids on this list because enough about the kids. I'll say that. But they're of course always there. But my dog always
0: number one. Yeah.
1: Always number one. But my dogs, you know, they just uh I just drove out to Vermont from Los Angeles with my dogs, four of them, which sounds That's like so a lot. It's a lot of dogs. It's a lot of hair in the car, but they just they love me. You know? <laughs> <laughs> that really is the bottom line they love me they never they always want to spend time with me that's it they
0: never let you down no they don't that's, that's just all there is i get it yeah yeah it's yeah. not to like okay. that. what's yeah. not to like yeah number two
1: i'm always having a trip in the works
0: oh yes okay yeah. so explain that because well, that's a good one yeah and no one's ever said that before
1: And now I always, you know, I'm always on, you know, whatever site, kayak or or Expedia or something, and I'm always planning a trip. Like I have earmarked flights, hotels, you know, special events, things. As long as I I have it in my head that there's a vacation coming up, some kind of a special trip, I feel better about whatever it is I'm slogging through, whatever work it is, whatever anything, because I can always look forward and say, uh, but in September, I'll be in where Kyoto, you know, I mean, even if it's fantasy, even if I'm not yeah. really going, even if it <laughs> ever not really happen, the idea exists that I have something to look forward to, because I love traveling more than just about anything. So I just always have to have something that's sort of a potential exciting um, diversion and Travel something coming up, so I always just have to have something in my little travel folder.
0: Now, of course, travel is the thing that is going to be probably the most different and the thing that will take the longest to get back. Yeah. But have you thought about where you want to go on your first allowed trip?
1: Well, you know, my daughter lives in London, so I'm she does. Yeah, I'm missing her terribly because she was supposed to. Come out. She got stuck there just when everything sort of shut down. So that that's probably going to be my first venture. Maybe we'll meet someplace if if that's possible. We met in Ireland last year, and we tend to do that. She went to school in Scotland, but that's probably my my first the first thing that I'll do. But yeah, I you know I love to go to Mexico. I love I don't know there, I have so many places on my list because I just it's what I do. I just fantasize between that. And and looking at ruined um, houses, you know, I'm on this site, cheap old houses. And- oh,
0: I don't know that one. Oh,
1: please go on this. And now there's a new thing, cheap old houses in Europe, and they're like a dollar <laughs> fifty and you can get they it. pay you yeah they'll they pay. pay you to move there but you <laughs>
0: yeah. have to fix it up
1: these like old monasteries in Italy and i mean it's just you you'll never leave your house again you just look at that and then you'll be a happy
0: person but
1: um, <laughs> yeah fantasy real estate and fantasy travel and uh yeah that that makes me happy
0: yeah that's going to keep keep one going for a long time yeah. um number 3 uh well, blank notebooks
1: and Uniball pens. I just, I have them everywhere. I, I crave certain texture of notebooks. You know, I'm always in search of the right ones I like and the right spacing of the lines because I just love to scribble down ideas that I think are my, you know, my next great idea. They're usually not my next great idea because it usually happens in the middle of the night, but just having notebooks everywhere and I'm just always in search of. The perfect notebook. I have them in every backpack that I carry, and in every sort of pocket everywhere. And then Uniball pens are my favorite pens of all time. So I have. Yeah, five.
0: they're good. Yeah, they're good. I personally like very smooth pages. I like no lines or narrow mm-hmm. lines. What about you?
1: I like, I do like a blank page, except that I have terrible handwriting because I'm left-handed. And I tried for so long to copy this girl that sat next to me, her writing. She had this great bubble writing. And so my left hand just sort of drags across my my writing, you know, and so it just smears everything. So my, and my writing goes down in a, like, a, I need a line is what I'm you saying. You need a line is I what you're saying. Line. It's a mess. Yeah. I can't even describe what a mess it is. So I need a line, even though I... My fantasy is I like a blank
0: page because it looks prettier. Okay, number four, and this is a really good one.
1: Mm -hmm. Saying no, and it's something that I learned sort of later in life when I realized that I could say no to people, because what I did before I learned that I could say no was that I would say yes to things like game night, which I hate. Uh-huh. And then I would just bail at the last minute, which is so rude. So people would hate me. And as opposed- I wouldn't invite you again. I wouldn't invite me again. And would just think I was a terrible person. Just say no in the first place. And then you're off the hook and you're not dreading it for three weeks and thinking, oh, why did I say yes to that? Why? I don't want to go. I don't want to do it. Just say no in the first place. And then you're done. And then you have nothing hanging over your head. Or say no, you know, just say no to things you don't want to do. And it's easy. And nobody really cares. That's what I figured out. It's like, nobody really cares if I'm at their game night. Like, I'm not that important that people really <laughs> give a shit whether I show up at their game night. <laughs> <laughs> that, was, that was a good one for me. and it And it kept me from having sleepless nights of like, oh, God, why do I say yes to things I don't want to do? And why am I always doing that? Because nobody else is thinking about me except me. Is
0: what I realized. Well, we always are so self-conscious about ourselves. Oh, yeah. how well al- I look too fat. I can't go here or there. No one's looking at you. Everyone's no. looking at themselves. Of course they are. My worst
1: moment of that was I said yes to somebody for a date once. Very long time ago. I was very young in my 20s and I didn't want to go. Like I was in a panic. I can't, I can't do it. I can't do it. He shows up to the door and full on panic. I'm not going. And I ran and I hid under my bed and he came around to the back, and there was a French door next to my bed, and he looked through the windows, <laughs> and he could see me laying <laughs> underneath my bed. It's oh, no. <laughs> and it was most, it was like, what's wrong with you? And I had to see him in acting class the next week. And it was just like, how about just don't say yes to things? So, yeah. Yeah. yeah saying, oh,
0: that's pretty that's, – that's extraordinary. Yeah, it's tragic. Is and yet I mean. you survived. I did. Here I am. Here you are. And number five. Um, ugly underwear
1: uh was very liberating when I realized that nobody I mean, there are probably some people that care if you have, you know, really va va voom lingerie on, but I've yet to meet people, men that really care that much about it. And for me, like super comfortable almost maternity underwear Uh is my favorite thing on the planet and so comfortable. And I'm so happy. Once I stopped wearing like thongs and things Uh like, what am I doing with my life? Doing that, always pulling it out of my ass. And it's like, and I started wearing just really comfy, like cotton, almost boy underwear. Uh, It changed my life and so I'm I'm pretty happy about that and nobody cares like there's nobody cares nobody cares and the
0: kind of man who is worthy of you won't care
1: no not at all um
0: I have to confess since the quarantine I have rarely worn a bra and that has been just a giant pleasure Mm, yes that is yeah that's there's nothing better than that.
1: Yeah. Quarantine. And there's, you know, as bad as it's been, there've been a couple things about it, like not no highlighted hair and no bra. It's not been the worst thing in the world.
0: And you had had experience in quarantine anyway, before that.
1: I had, that was a
0: little less pleasant, but yeah. a medical quarantine. Yeah. But to read more about Carrie's life, her ability to say no, her ability to talk to her chickens and have her chickens live in maybe more splendor than she does. I don't know. There were no illustrations. You should read her new book, Aren't You Forgetting Someone? Essays from My Midlife Revenge. Carrie Lizer, lovely to meet you over the phone. Hope to meet you one day in person. I hope so too. Thanks so much. It's been great talking to you. Thank you. Thanks, Lisa. You've been listening to Five Things That Make Life Better with me, Lisa Birnbach. My guest this week has been Carrie Lizer, author of Aren't You Forgetting Someone? Essays from My Midlife Revenge, published by Running Press. You can follow Carrie with a K on Instagram and Twitter at Carrie Lizer. If you enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe to it and rate us and review us because that's how people find out about us. My blog is at lisabirnbach.com where you you'll find links and photos to all the things in this program. The podcast is produced in New York City by TheFieldTV.com. My engineer is Kevin Watkins. My team is Spresa Aruchi, Michael Port, Boko Haft, and Sam Haft. Until next week, wear a mask and act natural. Bye-bye. That was Five Things with Lisa Bernbach. New episodes every Friday, if she remembers.